uh, Chris Kirstner. Yeah, committee recommendation. Um, just want to share with you is about a year ago, last summer, that we uh, we came together and we formed, and now um, it's my privilege to welcome our top pick here, Will Can Will Turner, as our pastoral candidate. He'll be here with us uh, next Sunday as well. And then, just a reminder, on June 30th after the service, uh, we'll be voting. So, thank you. Welcome, Will. Good morning, Grace Chapel. I'm glad to be here. I want to thank Chris. I feel like a politician. I want to thank Chris, the Committee of Recommendation, for the elders, for the leaders, for, for everyone here just giving us a very warm welcome, very kind welcome. Be preaching from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5-13. I believe it's page 965 in the Pew Bible. If you would turn there with me, I'll read the passage in a moment. Let me pray. There is no love like your love, Father. There is no love like this. We give you praise that you have set your love and affection upon us. That even though while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were your enemies, Christ, you died for us. What praise, what glory, what honor we bestow upon you, the name above every name, the name that we bow before now, the name that eternity will bow before. Christ, we praise you. Father, Son, Spirit, we ask you be here in our presence. Give us, your beloved church, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to love, and hands and feet to do. May we give you glory and honor, all of it deserving to your name. Amen. One of the fondest memories that I have in childhood is going to old Veterans Stadium. Anyone remember the vet? I went with my papa watching the Phillies lose. See, I was too young in 1980 to remember the World Series. I was only, I, I'm going to date myself, I was only three when they won. So I, I, I knew the names. My grandfather pushed it in me. I got to meet Harry Callis, Richie Ashburn, and as you'll see later, my favorite, Michael Jack Schmidt, number 20. See, my love for baseball, interestingly, started flourishing back when the Phillies became mediocre again. That's when I started loving baseball. We'd always go to the games. I remember with my pop-up taking us to the games. And usually what would happen, the Phillies would be losing in the 7th, 8th, ninth, and we, he would just be like, oh, I'm done. We're going to leave. We're going to beat traffic and get back. And we listened to it on the radio, driving back. But those moments with my pop-up, with my grandfather, were treasured moments. Spring forward to 2008, we're in Baltimore. I was teaching and serving in an inner city church there, and they won. I remember listening to the games. We didn't have the ability to watch them on TV, listening to the games on the radio and being ecstatic. They finally won, and I was wishing so much I was in Philadelphia because no one in Baltimore cared. <laughs> Two years later, we moved back to Philly, and guess what? They resumed their mediocrity. <laughs> but this year seems a bit different, does it not? 
for those baseball fans. See, the expectations are a little higher. On March 1st, those expectations went through the roof. The news media was heralding already giving us the World Series. The sports pundits were saying this is a new era. Great team became a great team. I'm sorry, good team became a great team. You know what we did? We shelled out $330 million to someone who's very possibly the best player in baseball. Bryce Harper. To say that expectations are high for Harper's first game as a Philly would be an understatement. I don't know if anybody remember how he did. The local media heralded him as the savior of Philadelphia. He was going to bring another World Series. 1980, 2008, here we come again. They were planning already the parade down Broad Street. So how did he do? How did, how did Bryce do his first game? First at bat, this newfound savior of the Philadelphia Phillies. He grounded out the first. Next to a bats, very next to a bats. Guess what he did? Struck out twice. And then he was intentionally walked. That has got to be one of the most underwhelming starts to a career in Philadelphia history. And then we got this guy, Jay Bruce, now, who's played four games and he's hit four home runs. And many people are saying that, you know, Jay Bruce is better than Bryce Harper. Give him the 330. See, high expectations are good, right? It's good to have high expectations, but as all Philadelphia teams know, there's a danger with high expectations, right? How many of you were disappointed? I love when the, I'm an Eagles fan. When the Eagles won, I, you know, next year we're going to repeat. It was a little disappointing. When you have high expectations, especially if you're a Philadelphia sports fan, you're also going to have high disappointments. Or maybe we should say low disappointments. High expectations are good, but the letdowns are always painful. So what does what it mean for you and me this morning? Why am I talking about expectations? Well, the obvious. There's always a lot of expectations on a potential pastor, right? Some may be thinking, there's hope. We've been here three years, and we, we want the hope of that. Others may be fearful. Maybe you're a bit of both. Some may be thinking, I hope this guy is good. This really better be a good sermon. Some may, be, some may be thinking, I hope he's a lot like our old pastor. Others may be saying, I hope he's not like our old pastor. Some may be thinking, man, he's kind of old. Look at all that gray hair. Others may be thinking, he's pretty young. And on and on it goes. And on and on. See, expectations are all over this place. Each one of you, each myself included, brings expectations to the table. And let me tell you from the beginning, no one person will meet all your expectations. So from the beginning, let, let's help set the stage. I want to lower the expectations a little bit. Maybe a better way of describing it is saying, let's get more realistic expectations. Let's have biblical expectations. We need to have biblically realistic expectations. So let me give you an idea. Have you seen this, maybe seen the title of the sermon? I usually don't have sermon titles this long. A lousy sermon from an imperfect pastor for a broken people. A lousy sermon from an imperfect pastor for a broken people. So what is my point with that? Simply this. I'm not Bryce Harper. I'm not even the ball boy. 
I'm not here to save you. I'm not here to turn the church around. No pastor is capable of that. If we keep with a baseball analogy, what fits best? A pastor is a coach. The job of the coach is to equip the people, to equip you so you play the game we call the Christian life and to play it well for the glory of Christ. The job of all leaders, elders, pastors, is to equip and also, most importantly, in the equipping, to point to the one who saves. It's the job of leaders, the church, and all of us to encourage one another to Christ. So Grace Chapel, what do I have to offer you this morning? A lousy sermon from an imperfect pastor for a broken people. You're sitting here thinking, well, that's not very exciting. That's not very hopeful. That doesn't give me what I want. But here's the thing, church. There's actually a lot of hope in that. There's a lot of hope for this lousy sermon. There is remarkable hope for this imperfect pastor. And there is wonderful hope for this broken church. And here it is, my point of the sermon. We, church, have a good word from a beautiful Savior for a redeemed church. A good word for a beautiful Savior, from a beautiful Savior for a redeemed church. So church, we need to hold fast to that good word. We need to look to our beautiful Savior, and we need to hope in our redemption. So there is hope for lousy sermons. We have God's holy word. We must hold fast to that word. There is hope for this imperfect pastor because I have a beautiful Savior. Church, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's hope for us, a broken church, because we are the redeemed of God. Let's read as we remember a good word from a beautiful Savior for us, the redeemed church. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 5 down to 18. Beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the great Sorry, the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also 
with Jesus and bringing us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So church, Paul writes, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's God's holy word for his holy church. So my first point, lousy sermons, but a good word. Sermons are a bit like baseball bats, baseball at-bats. They're, they're only a part of the pastor's vocation. They're only a part of ministry. Over the course of any given year, a pastor could preach anywhere from 40 to a, maybe even 100 sermons. The reality is a few of those are going to flop. There are going to be a few lousy sermons. My favorite Philly coming up, as I said, was number 20, Michael Jack Schmidt. I stood up every time he came to the plate because the expectations were always there that he could send one out of the park. He's number 16 in the top home run hitters of all time. I believe 548. You know how many times he struck out? 1,883. For every home run he hit, he struck out over three times over the length of that 18-year career. See, the reality is preaching shares those similarities with baseball. Some sermons are hit out of the park, with others a swing and a miss. But in every sermon that I preach, my hope is to do the best to hold fast to the Word of God, the good news, faithfulness to God's good Word. This faithfulness marked the Apostle Paul. Look at verses 5 to 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Grace Chapel, the only word of hope I have to offer you this morning is the word of God. We don't proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Christ. And that is the best news that I can hear, the best news that you will hear. Some sermons may challenge and convict, some sermons may motivate and encourage, and some sermons just flop and fall in deaf ears. These sermons will be forgotten. It happens to all pastors. But I hope and pray my sermons will always be motivated and seeping with the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ. And let me tell you this, if you hire me, I give you my permission. The moment, the day I stop preaching Christ, fire me. Because I have nothing more to say to you. And I don't want you to hear what I say. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what must be proclaimed. There is no other good news for us broken people but Christ. 
I am not here to proclaim myself, but Jesus Christ is Lord. I am not here to preach my opinion, but the whole counsel of God. I am not here to tickle your ears. I am not here to entertain. I'm here to speak the truth in love. The word that is sharper than any double-edged sword. The word that will cut up and divide bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It is the breathed out very breath of God. Scripture that is useful and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Scripture that fully equips men and women of God for every good work. I am here to make Jesus famous. I am here to lift him up. He is the one that must be exalted. He must become greater. All of us, myself included, must become less. Like Paul, my confession is that I am simply a servant of Christ, exalting the risen Savior. See, Christ has shown his light in my heart. He brought me out of the kingdom of darkness and into his glorious kingdom of light. Years ago, I've shared this morning that in Bible college, I sat on the hood of my candy apple red 1969 Ford Mustang. I sat there enthralled with the holiness of God, the wonder, the beauty, the majesty of this creator God. And I stood there condemned as a sinner who saw a Savior. And I cried out to Christ, and Christ saved me and redeemed me, bringing me out of the kingdom of darkness and into his glorious kingdom of light. He saved me. He redeemed me. He gave me a new song to sing, a new life to live, a new word to proclaim. See, Christ has shown his light in my heart. I pray, church, that he is shining his light into your hearts. We may preach lousy sermons. We may even be afraid to talk about Jesus with our friends and neighbors. We may even be afraid to talk about Jesus with the person sitting next to us in the pew. We will stumble over our words. But church, know this with confidence. We have a good word from God. We have a glorious word from God. We have a hopeful word from God. We have a convicting, life-giving word from God. We have the gospel. We have the good news of a Savior who bled and died and rose again in power, a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church, let us be faithful to that good word. Hold fast to God's holy word. My second point is they're imperfect pastors, but a beautiful Savior. All of us, myself included, are unbroken people. Paul, the apostle, was a broken apostle. Look, listen to how he describes himself in verses 7 to 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I am nothing but a jar of clay. We are nothing but jars of clay. We are the afflicted, the perplexed, the persecuted, and the struck down. But we have a treasure 
We have Christ who is our treasure. So even though we are afflicted in every way, we are not crushed. Even though we are perplexed, we are not driven to despair. Even though we are persecuted, we are not forsaken. Even though we are struck down, we are not destroyed. I will often say this. I am simply one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. The bread of life, Jesus Christ. That is the job description of every pastor, every leader, every elder, everyone who claims to follow Christ. Every disciple. Their job is to tell other beggars where they may find manna, Christ. See, our lives should mirror the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Do you remember what he said when Jesus arrived on the scene? He was doing ministry for a number of years, and then all of a sudden, Jesus walks on the scene. Immediately, John turns says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am not worthy to untie his shoe. He must become greater. I must become less. That should mark each and every one of us. All God's people must be seeking to make much of Jesus and less of ourselves. You may not, we may not realize this and we fight against it, but we're just the background. Jesus is the star of the show. At best, we're supporting cast. Our eyes need to be more on him and less of ourselves. So how do we make less of ourselves? How do we look to Jesus? How do we stop navel-gazing and behold our risen Savior? We do that by proclaiming Him and living in accord with the good news of the gospel. We are an imperfect people, but our hope doesn't lie in our imperfections. It lies in the perfect God-man. It lies in our hope, Christ the beautiful Savior. So who is this Jesus? Who is this beautiful Savior? He is the Son, is, I'm sorry, He's the Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the head of this glorious body, the church. He is the one exalted by God, given the name that is above every name, the name that Jesus, where every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our wonderful, merciful Savior, our precious Redeemer and friend. He is the one that we praise. He is the one we adore. He gives us healing and grace that our hearts always hunger for. He is the first and he is the last. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was the lamb that was slain, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He alone is worthy and one day in glory our voices will join the voices of the church throughout all eternity with a loud voice crying out, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This church is our beautiful Savior. Look upon him. My last point, we are a broken people but a redeemed church. 
We are broken, but not without hope because we are redeemed. We are all broken, each and every one of us. We are wretched sinners. One of the questions that was asked on the initial pastoral search question that was really good says this, if married, what would your wife say are your strengths and weaknesses and struggles? If with older children, what would they say? That was a good question because you know what that did? If I was ever thinking I was up here, that shot me down real quick. I actually went ahead and gave the question to my wife and children and went in another room and let them fill it out. I cut, copied and pasted it, stick it on the questionnaire, read it, was remarkably humbled and sent it in. They know my imperfections. They know my brokenness. What a great question, a very humbling question. I am an imperfect pastor. I stand each and every day with my family that knows of my brokenness. But here's the thing. In Christ, everything changes. We are sinners who are also saints. We are broken, but we are also healed. We are crushed, but we are also brought up to resurrection. Paul says, if you skip down to verses 16 to 18, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our outer selves are wasting away. Our bodies from birth begin to what? Die. Sin has infected every area of our lives. Nothing is left untouched. We are all broken sinners. But Paul says we do not lose hearts. We are broken sinners, but we are redeemed saints. Each and every one of us will face and have faced and will continue to face what Paul says are light and momentary troubles. But you all know they don't feel light and momentary when you're going through them. They are crushing. They are weighty. They seem to last forever. We cry out to God with David and with Jesus, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And during these so-called light and momentary troubles, we can't see through the tears. We're crushed. Our weak faith totters. We live in a broken world full of broken people. This is everyday reality. Life is full of broken promises, broken dreams, broken homes. Only in light of eternity will we be able to make any sense of this. For now, there is brokenness, brokenness, and more brokenness. But we don't like the brokenness. We hate the brokenness. So for those on social media, how do you convey yourselves? As a broken, needy sinner or someone who seems to have it all together? As someone who seems to eat all the great meals? Who seems to have the perfect life? Who's always enjoying and praising God? But as we know, social media is, is a distorted reality. 
It doesn't reveal the true self. It doesn't reveal us. It doesn't reveal our brokenness. See, there's a problem when we try to claim to be perfect people. And I hope you realize this. Perfect people don't need a Savior. Perfect people don't need Jesus Christ. Broken people need Him. Redemption is found only in brokenness. So herein lies our hope. We are broken people who are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. As Paul says, we are outwardly wasting away, but inwardly being renewed day by day so we confess at the same time our brokenness and our redemption. We are sinners and saints. We recognize both. We hold to both. One of my favorite quotes is from the well-known pastor Charles Spurgeon. In his autobiography, he writes this. He says, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. But he who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Church, we must confess our brokenness. We must not think lightly of our sin. We have stood before God and all of us are convicted and condemned. We all have the rope around our necks only when we're broken, only when we see our sinful condition, only when we turn to the risen Christ who has hope there, then we weep for joy because we have been pardoned. We have been forgiven. So as broken but redeemed people, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. We look to God. We look to the Father, the Son, the Spirit. We don't look to the brokenness in our lives, but we look to the Christ who is healing our brokenness and will one day ultimately wipe away every, every tear. So here is why we do not lose heart. We are a broken people, but we have been redeemed by a beautiful Savior. Therefore, church, we hope. I hope you're familiar with William Cooper. Many of you, have, if not heard of William Cooper, have heard of his friend, John Newton. Now, John Newton is known for being a man of many letters. He is a pastor. He is, was a significant influence in the abolition, abolition of slavery in England. And he's the author of Amazing Grace. William Cooper just so happened to live behind John Newton. Now, the interesting thing with Cooper, he was a poet and a hymnist but he wrestled constantly with depression and despair. He was a broken man, often wrestled with God. But he wrote what has become probably one of my favorite hymns. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, 
And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. This may or may not be a lousy sermon. I can guarantee you that I'm an imperfect pastor and each and every one of us are broken. But our hope is this. There is a fountain filled with blood. And sinners, all of us, plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And church, this is a good word from a beautiful Savior for us, the redeemed people. Together as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our story. This is our song. This is our theme, redeeming love. See, church, we have a good word from God. No, a great word from God. We have the gospel and the good news of our Savior's perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection. Church, let us be faithful always to hold on to that word. We have a beautiful, beautiful Savior. How foolish it is when we take our eyes off of him. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And church, we are the redeemed people of God. Live your life in hope of that redemption. Let redeeming love be your theme. And on that day, our voices will join the broken voice of William Cooper, who writes in the last verse, When this poor lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Church, let redeeming love be your theme. Our Father, we sing and celebrate of your power to save. We praise you for this fountain that is filled with blood. We praise you for the cleansing us from all of our guilty stains. And Father, we long, and if we don't long long enough, create in our hearts a desperation, a deep longing for that day where we see you face to face, where we rejoice in that day. And Jesus, your precious blood, we confess, will never lose its power. Spirit, we ask that redeeming love would be our theme forever and ever. Help us to start now and prepare for all eternity. In Christ's great, glorious, and beautiful name we pray. Amen.